Welcome to season two of the Always in Pursuit podcast. I'm Mike Levine. Together with my main man, Mike Burke, I'm excited to keep telling you stories about amazing and interesting people you ought to know. Our podcast unpacks the journey, the struggles, and the victories of our guests in an effort to help you in your own pursuits. You're an important part of the AIP mission, so please share this episode with people you might think will benefit from the content or with people that just like to hear good stories. Thanks for sticking with us as we continue talking to people who live life on the offense. Our guest on this episode spent the majority of his military career as a Green Beret, an elite member of Army Special Forces. Highly trained and regularly deployed in support of a global war on terror, he did his duty to his country and his fellow soldiers. Over time, the weight of that duty would have a cumulative effect and ultimately a devastating impact. How he got there and how he recovered is the topic of our conversation today with Michael Rod Rodriguez, the president and CEO of the Global War on Terrorism Memorial Foundation. Rod, welcome to the Always in Pursuit podcast. No, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to have a conversation with you, Abano. I'm really looking forward to it. So um, you have quite a uh, an interesting background. Um, you, you don't get to be uh, where you are in the world right now without having walked a uh, uh, a twisty path, so to speak. So let, let's take it all the way back to, uh, to to when you were a kid. So growing up in New Mexico, that's right? Yep. Yeah, I'm from uh, southern uh, New Mexico, a town. I grew up in uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. Uh, so down here with some familia. So I'm from southern New Mexico. So Las Cruces and and you're, you're surrounded growing up by men who... Who who did what you do now? Who were yeah, who, I mean, who served their nation and and uh, you know fought fought in our nation's war and and what was that like growing up around men like that? No, absolutely. I think um, you know I, I say it as often as I can. You know my my first heroes. You know I really don't have TV or stuff growing up, but uh, like wasn't Spider Man or or like you know in the comics or like Superman or you know, nothing against that. I think it's really cool uh, part of our culture. But you know my first heroes were my father. Served in Vietnam. My grandfathers both served in World War II. Their brothers, you know, Kiko, Andres, um, they all served in World War II. Their brothers, you know, uh, some of them had jumped into uh, Normandy. Um, I mean, so I I listened to them. Uh, they didn't really talk about, you know, um, war and I glamorize it to a kid, you know, but they spoke what, what impacted me most was they spoke about the men that they served with, uh, those to the left and right. Um, and they spoke with them um, with a very reverent tone um, out of love. And I'm from Southern New Mexico. You know, you probably guess my heritage. Um, so we're a very cultural family, uh, very traditional. So familias primera, right? Like the families, everything. But they spoke about them with families. So there were these family members that my the men in my family had served and fought with that they loved. And it, for me, it was incredibly impactful. I'm like, wow, who are these men? I mean, I could name a bunch of them off to you right now. They're, they're, they're myths in my mind. And uh, that kind of, you know, drove me or kind of put me on the path to experience that for myself. So as far back as I can remember, I wanted to uh, grow my familia you know, in the manner they did in, in, uh, in service to this nation. And uh, even, you know, even as a kid, I didn't know what I was asking for, but I was like, I, I wanted to serve this nation. I wanted to go to war. I wanted to fight. I wanted to experience what my, the men in my family experienced. But you didn't, you didn't get a lot of it through, you know, sort of the no shit there I was stories. You, mm -hmm. You've met, you said in the past that these men were, you know, sort of the quiet professionals, almost the prototypical side of the special forces world, but, but that, that 
sort of that quiet humility was was really what drew you in. Absolutely. So my my father especially uh, is a very stoic man, very quiet, reserved, and they didn't like I said they didn't glamorize it. They didn't be like yeah. And then there was this, and then there was you know bombs going off, and so no, not at all. Um, they spoke about you know I could kind of put the, the the pieces together as I got older. They would reference things, but I didn't know what the hell that meant. Um, but it was the way they talked about these men and the, and the love that they still have, you know, for these men, um, you know, those that they, their, their extended family, the brothers that they, the, the bonds that they built it can only built be built in, in times like that. And so it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the like, no crap there I was and no, no cool sniper stories. No, no, no. Mm. It's, Hey, it's, this is, you know, um, you're going forward uh, to serve to the man to left and your right and putting your life on the line for them. So what was it that that pushed you kind of uh you know down the street to the army recruiter's office and and not not anywhere else so to speak um so as i got older you know then i got into like gi joes and stuff right i got to see gi joes and they were like like special like oh my gosh they had all these the, all the different this is really cool about gi joe was it wasn't like the gi joes wasn't like an army it was an army it wasn't native it was like a conglomerate of you know every service right so it was really cool so what i did was I spoke, I looked at, okay, which units, you know, I do the most, you know, there was the army had, uh, at that time in, in the early nineties, you could go to the Ranger Battalion. Um, that was something I looked at. And then the Marines at that time, they had, uh, recon, um, air force guys didn't even really want to talk to me. And I was like, okay. And I had no desire to go into the Navy at all. I mean, nothing against my frogman brothers, but I was like, ah, I grew up in a desert, man. I could swim, but I'm like, it's really not interested in doing something like that. So, when I talked to the army and the Marines, the Marine guy was like, you know, I'm, I, even as, as young as I, I was, I could tell when someone's BSing you. Right. So if someone diminishes someone else to make themselves look better, like blow out someone else's candle to make theirs burn brighter, I know they're BSing and the Marine recruiter, nothing against my, my Marine recon brothers they are fine. I love them. But the Marine recruiter is like, just all he, he never told me about what they did. He just talked crap about everybody else. And I'm like, all right, man, I'm not going to believe anything you say. Uh, my army recruiter was 100% up front. Um, he was like, look, we probably can't get you in um, to a ranger contract at that time. It was very hard to get. Uh, and he was like, look, you know, I just, just make your own choice. So I chose to go into the army. I'm an army family, right? Like my, we're in airborne. I, I wanted to go airborne because like I said, my, as far back as we I can remember, you know, like I said, one of my family members jumped in. It's in our blood. So I'm like, all right. So that's what drove me to the army. Well, and I love that because right over your shoulder, we could see uh, in the video, you've got a, a big red one hanging on the wall there in, in your uh, in your your family's house. So definitely an army family. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, my father served in uh, the big red one in uh, Vietnam during the, the Tet Offensive. So, um, what what is it that what what did you what did you come in the door as uh, in the um, army? What, what did oh, you yeah. choose? So the only jo the only job I could get was. Uh, with an airborne contract was a 16 Sierra at the time. This was 1992. 16 Sierra uh, ended up being a 14 Sierra today. It transitioned like a 96, but anyway, it was a, a stinger, like a man portable air defense, like a, a stinger guy. And uh, they're like, yeah, if you get this, when you go to airborne school, the Ranger recruiter, because I want to go to Ranger Battalion, um, the Ranger Battalion recruiter will go, will come around. And for anyone that doesn't have a RIP contract or Ranger contract, they you can go to RIP. It was called RIP, I don't, I don't, you know, back then. Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. So basic training, AIT, go to jump school. And I was like second, first or second one to show up for the Ranger recruiter, you know. Um, 
I showed up and when you walked in, they asked you like, Hey, uh, so what's your MOS? Cause obviously they don't have all, they don't take all the MOSs. I didn't know this, you know, dumb 18 year old kid. I walk <laughs> in and I was like, oh, I just turned 18 at that time. And, um, and he, and I was like, Hey, so what do you do? The guy in front of me was a, was a, a mortarman, 11 Charlie. He's like, yep, get in here. And then what do you do? Like, I'm a 16 series. He's like, what the F is that? I go, uh, I'm a stinger, like mad portable bear defense. I'm probably, probably not a good sign when that question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I told him, he's like, yeah, what? He's like, yeah, we don't need you. We teach everybody else how to do that. Get the hell out of here. I'm like, oh crap. I well, there that goes. Yeah, I guess I'm going to Fort Drum. So wow. So I didn't, and and I'm glad that happened that way because you know, I went through everyone's school, got to Fort Drum, and just, you know, shortly after, I think it was like a month, month and a half maybe, uh, afterwards, I ended up getting deployed to Somalia. Um yeah, I mean there there's probably a whole episode in that, just going from the north country of upstate New York to Somalia. Yeah, that was great. One yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I ended up in Somalia, and I guess it, it, it worked out for me, you know, um, because at, at that time it was early '93. There, you know, we were um, sent down there to to do what, what needed to be done, you know. And I, I always have to say this when I bring up Somalia: I was not there for Black Hawk Down. Tenth Mountain was there before and after. Um, I was I left right before that occurred. Um, so I have to say that, like you know, and 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 I'll also say this: a lot more happened in Somalia than people think. You know, it was a lot sure. more. Those 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 events, those those incredible events that occurred um, by those incredibly brave men over those course of those those few days. Um, a lot more happened than that. Yeah. So uh, again, mm-hmm. it, it has to be kind of a not not just a jar to the system. Obviously, going from upstate New York to Somalia, just geographically and climate wise. But uh, you know, being a fresh eighteen year old going to what would amount to be a combat zone. In a period of time where we we really weren't fighting anybody, I mean, if you think ninety two ninety three time frame, the the thing that pops out for most people isn't isn't Somalia, it's it's Bosnia, it's it's the Balkans. Yeah, I mean, we were at that time, you know, uh, um, there's a storm and just ended in ninety one, so that was still like, okay, we're not at war, we're just kind of whatever, and then. And you know, Operation Restore Hope—that's what Somalia was called. Um, it was a humanitarian mission. Um, but it turned into a pretty, <laughs> it turned into a combat mission. I mean, it turned into a pretty, pretty violent, pretty, pretty sketchy, uh, uh, environment. Um, so, you know, and me, as like I said, I was, I think I was the dumbest 18 year old to ever be in the army. Um, the dumbest private ever, uh, I got promoted like to E2 right when I got there. I mean, I was, I was in the army like six months by the time I got to Somalia and, uh, I didn't know anything, you know? Um, so it was incredibly, uh, it was a good uh, azimuth check for me to see to like a, uh, or I should say a plunge into an ice bath, I suppose is a better, better way yeah, to write of like what, what, um, what the world really is outside the continental United States, you know, what true oppression is, what, what suffering really means, right. What, um, ah, oh man, like death on a, on a biblical scale, right. Famine. I mean, just seeing, you know, to go from that, you go from the, the United States and I, where I grew up in Cruces, it's, not, you know, it's, there's not a whole lot here. I grew up in a pretty violent area. Um, I saw a lot, you know, uh, growing up with gangs and violence and people getting shot in the street. I mean, I, I grew up with that. That's my that's my home. That's my part of my cultura, my culture. But going to that, I was like, holy smokes, this is different. But what, what impacted me most about that deployment was I saw that, you know, the United States military, military does far more than hunt down bad guys, right? We do a lot. We're the best in the world at it. I'm going to say that. I'll say that all day long as, as often as I can. But we also provide safety, security, hope, um, happiness, um, 
I mean, like that, that people, unfortunately, that here in the United States don't know about, you know, so I saw children in these camps, all the parents were dead. Uh, inland, so there's uh, on the coast, We uh, what we did was we escort food and then in inland, and then we would do the uh, uh, food distribution sites. And then um, we would provide security because they were always trying to, the warlords would steal the food. So we would provide security, sometimes get pop shots. They, they, they never really tried to ambush us up front, but they would, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. Then we go out there and then we would assist the NGOs, you know, out there and set up food distribution sites and give food out. But by Doha was where we we would always, uh, not always, but it was as far inland as we would go. And, and you'd see these camps of children. Um, the parents are gone, you know, their famine, distended bellies, uh, you know, what you would imagine or what you see on TV these days, uh, not along the coast, but inland. And uh, it, it was, oh man, that's that's like, I, that's, those are the things I think about. Those are the things that wait for me when I close my eyes at night, right? And uh, these children are living like moment to moment, right? That's that's survival. That's oppression. Not what you people toss around all the time these days. I think they're full of shit. But that's I've, I've heard I've heard before that that uh, people who grew up what what they considered in America to be poverty, you know, they were poor. They, you know, mom and mom or dad or or both living paycheck to paycheck, um, you know, maybe not the best gear, uh, mo- but most of the time, you know, food on the table uh, or or government provided food, whatever. But folks that went from circumstances like that. And then went to a place like Somalia and saw that face to face. I mean, like you said a second ago, that's what's waiting for you when you close your eyes at night. But what what did it ever put you in a position where you were really doing a comparative thing, like how I grew up, how these guys are growing up? And, oh, yeah, and- absolutely. You know, like um, so I, I, we didn't grow up much. You know, my my father, um, you know, my father's family, um, our families, uh, there was like 20 kids and four parents. And then. From there, then, then our families came, you know, so uh, 20 kids and four parents in one house, right, here in Las Cruces, like not, I'm talking to mansion, like, and that, that's, that's how we lived. And we never, growing up, I didn't realize how little I had, you know, because nobody had anything. Um, but then I, it was, even in this short time of experience in the army, where I, like my first paycheck, I think is an E1 in 92, I got like 600 bucks or something. I was like, oh my God, I'm rich, you know? <laughs> so... And then seeing day to day, you know, when you're not blind, you watch TV, but so we didn't have a lot, but I don't think that was a bad thing. I mean, but even with what little we had, when I go to, got over there, I'm like, oh my God, I, I lived like a king compared to these people. Cause I, I mean, we had food, we had, you know, a lot of beans and rice and potatoes. Right. Um, but <laughs> these people didn't even know, I mean, these kids, these families, these children, they had no idea when their next meal would be. Um, but what was so, the- so comparative, like when you have that relative comparison, uh, it, where, how you grew up and how they're, how they're growing up. How did that make you feel looking at, you know, the warlords who you knew, even as a private who doesn't know anything at all, you know, that they're the ones that are, that are choking off the traffic. They're the ones that are preventing the aid supplies from getting from, you know, providers to receivers. Like what, what did, how did that frame this group of, of people for you at the time? Um, you know, it, uh, angered me. I'll be honest. Like I, I had an incredible amount of anger and disgust. You know, I grew up, I'm, I'm a, I'm a man of faith. You know, I grew up, I'm, I'm Catholic. I believe, you know, follow my, the teachings that were given to me. I was an altar boy. I mean, I, I grew up in the, in the Catholic church and, 
you know, you, you support and help those that need help, no matter what, that's part of even my, within my culture, like you help those, if you can help, you help. If you got to give them everything, you give them everything, right? Cause you, they're all they're They need it at that time. And maybe they'll give it to you someday when you did it. But as a kid, I was like upset. I was angry, like incredibly angry and, and um, disgusted, like just you know, like it's part of like people that, that travel the world and see this stuff, then there's no way to, conceive how they would think that was okay right you can't like i can't conceive how a, a, a sociopath can, or a serial killer can do what they do it's the same thing it's like i can't imagine how those people would think like that but that's their socialization that's their culture and that's how they live um and that you know that that was just kind of the i don't know, a little seed that was planted that would pay off dividends later on when i decided to go to selection to become a green beret because then i really started to learn how to effectively communicate through cultures and try to understand you know, sociocultural norms as well as the language. And then, you know, try and not only say sway, but influence positive change and support of humanity. That's probably the best way I could frame that. Um, well, and I don't, I don't want to make it too, too corny or cheesy here, but I mean, your regiment has a, has a motto and, and that motto connects directly to what you just said, which is to liberate the oppressed. Absolutely. You know, depressed liber. I mean, that's, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, you know, when I decided to become, to go that direction, that it it was uh, again that's not corny, but it was a calling to me. It really was. I'm like I fit there. I belong there. You know, could I have gone on to do some other things? And 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 uh, yeah, but that was what I wanted to do. Um, you know, and and then I when I saw the SF guys, you know, I saw them in Somalia, and then a couple of years later when I deployed to Haiti, uh, people probably don't remember the coup that occurred down there. Um, I was part of that as well. Um, to, to stop that and re, you know, re, Operation Restore Democracy was the name of that, that operation. Um, I saw the SF guys and they were always, they weren't wearing all the crap we were wearing. Uh, you know, they, they, they seemed a lot more comfortable and the team in Somalia, I remember had a pet monkey. They, I would see them every now and then they had this monkey that they would cart around with them in their trucks. And I'm like, that is awesome. I would love a pet monkey someday. That's hilarious. I mean, you know, the th- all the things that you, you know, maybe think of in, in, in times where you've served throughout the world, the, the, the thing that, that jumps out to you that says, man, I want to be a green beret because they had a pet monkey. Yeah. And you know what? I'll, I'll jump ahead real quick in my career. But when I went, when I ended up going through selection and I was in the Q course, I was in 18 Delta and uh, it's a very long course and uh, other MOSs, other SF MOSs will go back to try and become a Delta, right? It's just, it's, it's incredibly demanding uh, academically and physically. It's just, it's like med school and like, a year and a half, right? It's man. And I don't know how I got through. I'll be honest. Uh, maybe affirmative action got me through. I don't know, man, but really I have no idea how that I got through. <laughs> but anyway, where I'm going with that is there was a national guard guy. He was an 18 Bravo, which is a weapons guys um, for a while, you know, national guard SF guy. And then he wanted to transition to 18 Delta. So then we were studying one day and we were talking about it and he goes, and uh, someone else knew that we had both been in Somalia and they brought it up. And uh, I thought he'd been in Somalia as a regular, a regular army guy like I was. And he was like, no, I was an SF, man. And then you know, he told me, I said, you know, I saw a team. They had a monkey. He goes, dude, that was my team. And his name was oh God, Coco. That was the name of the monkey. I'm like, are you kidding me? So I had seen this guy, I don't know, seven years prior, six years, six, seven years prior. So that was, it was just kind of funny. It's a very, very small world. Well, yeah, I was just going to say that if that didn't give you the, the, the preview of coming attractions of how small the army is. In cases like that, I mean, wow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
So uh, you you drop the man pack uh, and 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 put on a green beret. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. After um, after my time at Drum, I got sent actually here to Quiet Sands Missile Range uh, as a stinger guy because there's they test a lot of stuff over there. And all I did was shoot down planes, uh, which is cool. I mean, I shot down a lot of planes and some aerial targets and did some other testings, you know, um, some stuffs. And uh, I was like, uh, but I have TA-50. I wasn't doing anything. I didn't feel like I was performing my job Why I joined the Army. And I was like, all right, I think it's time to throw my hat in the ring and see if I can, you know, achieve, uh, you know, try and become a Green Beret. But again, you know, uh, and kind of to uh, put this on the timeline for for perspective, you know, you're, you're what? This is 99, 2000 timeframe, right? Um, 97. So 92 to 96, I was at Drum. And then the end of 96, I came here to White Sands and I was there like maybe a little over a year. And I was like, yeah, this ain't for me. I love it. It was cool. You know, I got to see my familia. My first son was born here. Um, so it was incredibly awesome. And uh, but I knew I wasn't if I would stayed here, I probably would have got out of the army. You know, I felt that pull to just stay home. And that family was like, hey, just just get out and stay here. It could be a state cop or something. Um, but I was like, ah, no, I, I wanted to do more. Um, so I was like, well, let me try this out. And if it works out great, if not, then I guess I'll get out and, you know, move in and move back home, I guess. I don't know. Okay. So, so it, uh, you went to selection in 97, 97. Yep. So, but I guess from the perspective, you know, if you talk to anybody who joined the army from 92 to 97, the vast majority of everyone wasn't doing a whole hell of a lot, except, no. you know, some home station training, right? There, right. I, mean, uh, I, I remember being, uh, 93, 94, seeing the, the headline in the Army Times talking about 10th Mountain Division being the most deployed division in the Army. Yeah. And, you know, of course, they were going, they, they did the uh, the Somalian and uh, Haiti. And mm-hmm. then I, I they went somewhere in 96. I, they might they might have yeah. done a Bosnia. They went Bosnia. Bosnia. Yeah, they were. Yeah. So they're they like, hey, if you're if, if you've got a 10th Mountain Patch on, you've got some frequent flyer miles. But, you know, <laughs> it's not it's not getting you a seat upgrade anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah definitely. But, but certainly, like, again, the rest of everybody else was like not really engaged in a lot of that, uh, a lot of that activity. So, you know, you go be a green beret there, there is, uh, I don't think anybody really could have foreseen what was to come, you know, after the the turn of the century. Right. I mean, and, and again, that's just another reason I was happy that the Ranger Battalion didn't take 16 Sierras at the time. Right. Cause because uh-huh. I, I did end up going to the most deployed unit, you know, um, um, you know, that, that existed for just entry level individuals, you know, and I went everywhere. I got to do everything. I got to, so like when Haiti popped off, you know, uh, it was interesting. It, this hadn't been done since World War II. Uh, I, you know, I love my devil dog brothers, but they didn't call the Marines to do this. They, they put us on an aircraft carrier and basically did what the Marines were supposed to do. Uh, we flew down to Norfolk and we had our birds on there and, you know, we did the whole disembarkment ceremony, which is amazing. You know, like it, 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 we were part of the carrier group that went down to Haiti. So eight days I was in the USS Eisenhower and, um, you know, we were, we, as soon as we got close to Port-au-Prince, that's when, you know, the birds were circling. You had the 82nd Airborne Division in the air. You had the Ranger Battalion Division in the air. And then there was another carrier that all the, the JSOC guys were on. You know, uh, just ready to go in. And I remember when we were on the on the aircraft carrier, we had three ROE cars, you know, rules of engagement cars, a white one, a black one, and a red one. The white one basically you went in with flowers in your hair, right? Like, oh hey, you know, 
<laughs> red one was like, hey, if you think you see something, shoot it, basically, right? So we were like, okay, which one are we going in? You're amped up. We did all that. We were training constantly on the on the on the aircraft carrier, getting ready to go in doing drills. And uh, the task force that I was part of, we were going to seize the port, which is which was like their prized position. They're they're you know ocean faring people, right? That was like their thing. So we were like, all right, and we were the largest force. So instead of the yeah, ASEC is not going to jump in there. You know, you can't airborne infill into a port. You can only air assault infill into a port. So I mean, you you us. you can. Well, you, <laughs> it's just it's not. It's, it's, it's definitely not recommended. <laughs> so anyway, we were we were amped up just to kind of frame it for us. But then, uh, the Reverend Jesse Jackson and and uh, President Jimmy Carter convinced Raul Cedras, the guy, the dictator. He's like, hey man, you might want to just stand down because these guys are about to. But they're about to come in, uh, you know, like Darth Vader and just just take care of this place. My, yeah, my my big brother still has a grudge against Jesse Jackson because he was a forward observer in the 82nd Airborne <sighs> on the plane and, mm. and turned around and went home. And he's like, man, this was this was it. This is going to be the day. It was. I mean, it, everyone was going to get their start, you know, their 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 muster stain on their wings. And it was we were going. I mean, it was. It was a fight. It was going to be a fight. Um, the Haitians are very proud people um, and they're very passionate. So Ram Cedras would have told his guys, look, we're going to fight. We can win. They're like, OK, we can win. And, you know, we wanted to fight, you know, as, as an adult, a mature man now at this time. I'm glad we didn't because we would have killed a lot of people. A lot of. Oh, some, yeah. We would have killed yep, yep, yep. a lot of people because of the, the, the selfish ambitions of a dictator. Um you know, at that time, I didn't give a shit. Like, like no, I'm coming in. You're back. <laughs> coming in. But then, right before, they're like, "All right, you know, uh, are we white? Are we white?" They call them by the colors for for us. And we're like, I could feel it. I was like, "Ah, oh, shit." So we still went in. Everyone else got to go home. The guys were like, "Yeah, we didn't get to go in." We were there. So JSOC never. They sent some SF teams to land to secure and do some stuff. But you know, the SMUs didn't. The, anyway, their footprint wasn't that large, but we were the footprint. So we still went in there and we went in there and it was, the country was just, God, it was, uh, you know, wasn't suited to to support really the people. So shares that wasn't ready to support us. There was, we were on a water ration. There were no flights coming in. Uh, it was, it, so we were there like eight, nine months and it was, it was awful, man. It was like, it sucked where they put us. It wouldn't happen today because of all the, the care they have for soldiers now, which is awesome. They, I'm not joking. They bulldozed, there was a dump. A Haitian dump. So our dumps, I wouldn't want to live on a dump here in the United States. Imagine a Haitian dump. They brought in a bunch of dirt, laid it over, bulldozed it. And that's where they set up our, our GP mediums. And that's where we lived for nine months on a dump. Oh, my God. We constantly sick. Guys were constantly, you know, it was, but that's where we lived. So I, I say all that because it was, it, it kind of sucked. You know? <laughs> but you have to imagine anybody, anybody who's a veteran of that, that particular uh, trip, trip down south, uh, could look at the latter years of, and again, combat, you know, separating the combat experience from it, but, you know, just the life, the, 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 the life cycle, life services aspect could look at, you know, a chew in, in somewhere in Iraq is like, Hey, that's good living. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. I know. Cause it, you know, that's why I was, I look back at my early career. I'm glad my first unit was Fort drum. I know what it's like to be in the field when it's 50 below. And you're just like, man, this is misery. This is misery, right? So everything that's like that was my, I call that my alma mater, right? Everything when I'm thinking I'm think suck, I'm like, oh no, it's been worse. This is okay, right? This is okay. <laughs> you, always got, you got something to compare it against. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean it doesn't. It doesn't mean it's, you're not like uncomfortable. But I'm like, all right, it definitely could be worse. And I'm not just saying that because I've lived it. So 
Yeah. So you you uh, you you do like uh, the man in the song says, and and you uh, you earn that green beret on that day, right? So you you move forward into into SF land. Yes. Yeah. I was I was lucky. I was stationed at White Sands. I think when I went because it's like 5,000, 5,200 foot elevation over White Sands, and I would train. I would like um my family hunts so we would go my my dad was making fun of me last night because he, he was so we were talking about you know you come home we talk stories and when we go hunting i carried a backpack but i put boulders like rocks in it so when you hunt here in the mountains you don't just sit and wait you drive like you have to go and you drive and it's different there's no tree stand like they do out in the east it's not easy you work so that's what i did and my dad was like making fun of me he's like yeah we used to make fun of you like this payaso which means clown um, out there with rocks and, but I train, I mean, I train, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty, um, passionate focused guy. And if, you, if I commit, all right, you're getting it. This is it. This is what I'm going to do. Right. Uh, like I said, so when I got down to, to brag for selection, I had all the oxygen in the world. I had big lungs, right. I could breathe. And, and it was, uh, I'm not gonna say selection was easy, but it was far more manageable. So, uh, you ended up, um, in, in the, uh, in the special forces world, and then 9/11 happens, and and you are part of a part of an organization that has since then disproportionately served. Um, I have to imagine that that you know again with your background in the early 90s and and seeing you know that those levels of human suffering that um, seeing what you saw after that it may not have been easy, but it, it certainly was not unfamiliar. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was. Um, you know, it wasn't like. You know, it was not like my first rodeo, right? Seeing some of the things I saw. Um, so I was able to manage it a little bit better. And uh, decisions that I made weren't based off of something I learned in the schoolhouse. While the foundation and logic and and teachings were given to me and I paid attention, whether whatever it was we were doing, um, I had real world experiences to base that knowledge off of and make a far more sound decision. You know, so I had, I hate to say the word, I had, I had wisdom, but you know, the, you know, time plus experience equals wisdom, right? No one can, I think that's a pretty simple uh, equation that I challenge anybody to say is false. So I had time and, and had a considerable amount of time doing some stuff and I, you know, had experience doing some things. So then that provided me a little bit of wisdom. I'm not saying I was a wise, like, you know, when I got to the teams, um, I knew even with the experiences I had, I didn't pretend to know anything. I didn't be like, oh, I know what I'm talking about. Because then at that point, I had stepped into, you know, um, I'd gone from the minor leagues to the pros, right? And I'm like, all right, now, man, I don't, I will, all right, what do you know? And I would offer, you know, my dos centavos, my two cents. Hey, what about this? And I was lucky that um, I had team sergeants and and uh, some of my seniors and, and some of the guys have been around a while that were willing to listen. Um, be like, huh, well, what is that? Well, tell me more about it. And and that's where I learned, you know, to listen to everybody, right? It doesn't matter the experience level or whatever, listen to everybody. So they would listen and sometimes they would, oh, that's a great idea. All right, let's let's let's, let's do what Rod said. Or, you know, and, and fortunately for me, I was in seventh group. So some of the deployments we did down south, uh, you know, I speak Spanish. So um I, I got to do some things because my Spanish was a little bit better than most. Rod, you 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 have a, a a lot of a lot of time downrange. You 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 spent um, you know uh, again maybe not as much as many, but more than most, right? So um, that time uh, and those experiences they have a uh, a cumulative effect both 
physically, emotionally, uh, and uh, spiritually. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Talk to me about some of the weight you've carried and, and some of those injuries that are both, you know, we're able to see and, and, and those that may be a little bit, you know, more beneath the, beneath the skin. Right. Um, well, before I go into that, I think it's important to, to, to share how I, how I view it, right. My time overseas, nothing, first and foremost, I don't feel like anything was taken from me, right. I made decisions. I chose to do what I did and I was always trying to get into more. Right. So my focus was, like I said, I, I focus on something. That's it. I'm committed to it. So um, both the good and the bad that comes with it. So all those experiences overseas weren't always negative. You know, they helped um, both the good and the bad, the positive and negative turned me into the individual that's right here talking with you right now. You know, um, whether people like me or not, it's just who I am. And so I, I just want to frame it like that. Cause I want to be like, I think more often than not, um, in the veteran community and those that never wear the uniform, they when guys and gals talk about it, they're like, oh, my God, it was such a horrible experience. Well, let's talk about the positive experiences and the education that you got in that no um, educational institution on the planet can provide that veterans have, you know, making split second decisions where life and death is on the line daily sometimes. Um, the impacts are generational based off of decisions you make. They're, they're, I don't care. There's not Ivy League school around that can give that information or, or, or provide that education. So, you know, it, it's important to look at like the whole the whole experience concept, right? Like, look at everything. So now I'll talk about some of the things that that I don't say have held me back, but some of the things I face. Nothing is uh, um, injuries, both physical, invisible, and some of the invisible stuff. Um, I will say first and foremost, uh, any physical injury I have, any pains that I have, or well, I look a certain way because of these injuries. Um, those are the easiest things that I face. They're not, it's just like, all right, it's a, it's a cosmetic thing or it's a pain thing, but it's the invisible injuries that probably, uh, present the most challenges to me every single day. And I say every single day, I kind of referenced it earlier when I talked about Somalia, I mean, it was in 1993, right? You're talking like, what was that? 30 years ago, 29 years ago. God damn. A hot minute ago. Yeah. Yeah. 29 years ago. Um, I still see it. I close my eyes at night and I, I see those children smiling with no teeth because they're malnourished, just happy to see the soldiers because we're bringing them food. This kid could die in like an hour or the next day. They have nobody on this planet, but that's joy. I've seen like the purest joy. Right. That's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to live till tomorrow because of what's happening right now so those are things because you know truthfully those children are probably long gone you know i can i've come to terms with that all those children we try to help are probably they probably didn't make it right um so how i those things are a cumulative effect like you referenced a minute ago um but when you're in service and you're doing things and especially in, in the community i was in you don't you don't have time for that at least up in you know in the especially after post 9-11, like it, there's no time for that. And there wasn't really any efforts to um, address post-traumatic stress or take a knee and sip some water, right? Or, hey, let's talk about it. No, there wasn't. There was no, that wasn't up until like 2011, 12, um, 13, really. Then when they really started, people started coming out to say, look, 
get help. They would always say it, but I think they were saying it just to check the mark. Hey, get help. But right, right. Yeah. I, I've heard I've heard some folks, a couple of team guys actually refer to this burden as like a rock. So like you say, you don't have time for it right now. So you have to compartmentalize it. So mm-hmm. you take that thing, whatever that thing is, you put it in the rock. Right. And and you know, depending on your level of resiliency, depending on your faith background, depending on your your support system, um some you know some folks are carrying a medium sized Alice pack. Some are carrying a a a large uh, large Molly, right? And but the, the bottom yeah. line is eventually that rock fills. Eventually yeah. the load is 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 too heavy. Yeah, I I I, I like the rock, but I like to use like a wagon because I'm just throwing stuff in this wagon and pushing it, and then I, at some point the wheels come off my wagon. Then what? ah, I like I that. Yeah, it's a wagon, right? I'm, I'm pulling this wagon. I'm the ox pulling the wagon, and. and Wheels come off because just the wagon can only bear so much. So that happened, um, you know, and, and I'll talk about physical injuries and some of the injuries I had uh, real quick. But, you know, I had a cumulative effect of a lot of brain injuries. I was lucky that every time I got injured, um, you know, I was able to to pick myself up and, and continue to fight or or be like, oh, my, hold on, give me a minute. OK, good. And a lot of my injuries or let's just say my injuries weren't all in combat. I have several combat injuries, but then I also have some that happen um, in training for combat because when we train for combat, it's like outside of like real bullets and bombs. Well, no, we, we, we use real breaching charges, but um, outside of like someone actually shooting at me with something that would kill me, it's the same thing. So, you know, I've, I've fallen off a heli- out of a helicopter doing a fast rope at like 45 feet. I've, you know, I've eaten a child. Like you place a charge when you're getting ready to go in. If you're number one man, the, the, the drill is you 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 cover the, the the breacher, and then you're supposed to get back in the stack. But everyone's so anxious to get in, so people inch forward, and then you're supposed to be you know three to five feet longer if you can, or further away from the breach point. But everybody's back up on you, and you're like a foot from this thing, and you're like, and then you hear the countdown, you know, so, and you're like, oh shoot, I can't back up. So you just open your mouth, look down and hope you don't blow your eardrums. To, you open your mouth so that the pressure equalizes with inside your cranium. So you don't blow your eardrums or your eyes or you just look down and it goes off. You decharge and you kind of get your senses when you get into the first or second room um, when you're clearing because people are pushing you through. So those are injuries. Those are pretty significant um, brain injuries and not just I dealt with, but everyone else dealt with, not to mention everything else that involves. So for me, I like probably the most significant ones were was IED incident in Afghanistan. Um, I was the only one that got that got injured, but nobody else knew but me. You know, I lost sight in my left eye. I didn't lose my left eye. Um, I couldn't see. Uh, they, they was a command at IED. Then they saw another ID at the front of the convoy. We we're on our way to get some bad guys. It was just things were hairy and it hit me. And I'm like, oh, and I was a senior 18 Delta at the time. I was one of the most senior guys on the team. All right, I got my I got my legs, I got my arms, not a lot of blood. You know, my team sergeant came up to you, Rod, are you fine? This is what I remember. The first thing I remember is like, Rod, are you okay? I'm like, Yeah, I'm I'm effing fine. I'm like, why? And he's like, Hey, well, this happened. I saw you get thrown. Are you good? I go, I'm good. And then, okay, cool. We gotta go address this. And that was the most significant one. Um, and I started getting my eyesight about eight months, nine months after that. I had come back. Uh, we had redeployed at that point, but that's wow. when Everything else changed. When I started coming back, uh, my eyes turned into like a married couple or any relationship. Uh, they stopped communicating. And I had like diplopia, which is double vision. And anyway, 
the wheels physically came off my wagon at that point where I couldn't, I had balance issues, my, the cumulative effect of all the brain injuries up at that point in my, my, um, my 17, 18 year career, um, were, uh, showing up. Like I have uh, tremors, intention tremors. Like, so if I try to do a fine motor skill, I start to shake. That's in, in, in an indicator of, uh, uh, Parkinson's, um, I boxed as a kid. I fought. Um, so it's just like the whole Muhammad Ali syndrome thing, right? Uh, they think it's chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Anyway, all this stuff was coming on. So when my physical injuries, my my physical wheels on my wagon started coming off, that's when all the emotional uh, damage, the moral injuries that I had sustained watching uh, the destruction of innocence, I had to call it something with all the things that I had seen, um, that came to the surface as well. And then you know, I was pretty much deadlined um, at that point. And, and you know, um, and thankfully, I had a, my command supported me. And they're like, Rod, you you need help, man. We need to take care of you. The the, the moral injury and the, 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 the destruction of innocence, those are, I've heard moral injury, but the destruction of innocence is just something that is, that's heavy. Like, and I want to, I want to touch back on that in just a second. I want to talk about our sponsor, Adaton and the flagship product the app muster. First of all, Adaton is hitting some home runs on social media. They've got a graphic up now. Um, it was on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago. It's a picture of the classic leaders green book and written on the cover in Sharpie is critical operations stuck in a stack of bees. Well, if you're a leader and your entire world is tied up in your green notebook, what the hell happens when you leave it behind or, or worse, can't crack the cover and give the answers your boss or your organization need? From walkie-talkies to tax at, military tech has evolved. Why hasn't your data management tool? Move past the legacy leaderbook mentality and see what Muster has to offer. Muster isn't tied to any legacy system, and it starts with just a mobile phone number. Get with Muster to make 21st century solutions that are both effective and efficient, reliable at any time, especially when it matters most. You can learn more, connect to the Adaton team, and see how others have started up free, no-risk market research trials of Muster at the website adaton.io slash product. That's A-D-Y-T-O-N dot I-O slash product. Check out the site, punch in your email to get in touch with James, JJ, and the rest of the team. That's adaton.io slash product. Tell them, always in pursuit, sent you. All right. And we're back with Michael Rodriguez. Rod is the president and CEO of the Global War on Terrorism Memorial Foundation. Uh, they are putting together our memorial. If you ask Rod, he will tell you it's your memorial. And uh, we're going to talk about the memorial here in just a second. We're, we're still on the journey with Rod as he comes to the end of his military career, whether frankly, he realized he was coming to the end or not. So Rod, you you experienced what you described as the destruction of innocence. The wheels came off the wagon. I mean, we have a ton of metaphors we can use here, but really where you found yourself was the physical injuries caught up with the emotional and spiritual injuries. So where did you find your, what year was that? And where did you find yourself at that point? Um, so I was, uh, so following my last deployment where I got injured, I was, I knew I was going, one of the reasons I was like, I can, I can suck this up, you know, when I got blown up the last time, uh, because I was going to be an instructor at the schoolhouse at Fort Bragg. So I was a senior sniper for my detachment. So I was going to teach at our sniper course, um, at Fort Bragg at, uh, JFK special warfare center. So, which is like, I was like super happy about not very many people get their chance to do that. It's the best sniper course on the planet. I'll say that to all those that wore the uniform, um, 
phenomenal program. Um, so I was really excited to go do that. And that's where I was sent. And, and at that place, we also have our a few other like CQB schools, hostage rescue schools, some other stuff that goes on there that we we bounce between the courses. And most of us are, they call it dual qualified. You've, you're a sniper, but you're also an assaulter. You know, the, the course of, anyway, I was going there. So that's where I was. And it was during, like after that appointment where my physical stuff was just starting to bubble the surface. But um, I was just, you know, I was just like, all right, I can just get through this because I'm just an instructor. And I used to have, um, um, they would, uh, it was just strange. It was only a short period of my life where I would have these seizures. Um, and I could tell that when they were coming on. So I'd be on the line teaching instructors, studs, like these, these guys, you're talking like from SF, from some of the SMUs and other units in the region battalion. And anyone came to the school, it's, it's the only level one sniper course um, that exists. Um, I'm sorry, I take that back. Our, our Frogman brothers have one as well. So I would be on the line teaching or, or whatever. And I love doing it. I love to teach. I love to share information because if I'm teaching someone, I'm also trying to learn from them. You know, back to what I had learned a long time prior or previous was I can learn from my students. And, you know, I was teaching the most combat ready force uh, on the planet. Right. These guys, had, a lot of them were, had just come back or getting ready to go to appointments. You know, we, the, the combat experience at in the military, um, the guys going through the specialized training, these are the, the finest warriors to ever walk the planet. So it was a humbling for me to get to impart a new skill to make them more efficient onto them. But at the same time, I wanted to see how I could better this skill that I had imparting to make the next class or make them that much better. So all that is to say, I was, I love, I love teaching there. Um, but I would get these, like, you know, I was, I told you my, my eyes weren't working, but I was teaching at a sniper course. You kind of only re- really use one eye while you're doing that anyway. Um, it's just <laughs> so like, your injury, your injury was to your non-firing eye, right? So I know, yeah, yeah. So, well, it, they still work, right? They just don't work together. Um, but even, even then, like if for anyone that's shot, you all shoot with both eyes open, we should, you know, maintain peripheral and situation, peripheral vision and situational awareness, but right. it, it, to, to describe to everyone what it's like for what it was like for me, or it is like for me, if you, um, like if you hold out a pistol and you look at the front sight, you kind of see two, but you know which one is pointed in the right direction, right? You don't ever see just one because it's only so close. You're like, okay, that's where it's at. That's my everyday, all day, everything, whether it's right in front of me or whether it's down down the hallway. Um, so I would get these, like, it's called an aura. You would A lot of people that have seizures, they'll feel something where they, they feel something. Me, I felt like all of a sudden I had a couple pennies in my mouth and I'm like, oh, shit. And I, ha- I knew I had about 20, 30 seconds to get someone. I'm like, hey, guys, I'll be right back. Uh, I was 18 Delta for, for the detachment or for the, the committee. I go to the FLA, you know, the whichever vehicle we're using for it. And I sit in the front seat. And for me, my seizures weren't like crazy. I would just kind of go to sleep for a few seconds. And then I'd wake up a little tired. And then I would just get out and go back and teach, right? Because I didn't want anyone to know because I didn't want to lose my damn job. So I was doing that for a while, but then things just started getting worse. My balance was worse. And then finally the command was like, Rod, what's what's going on, man? Um, and then I had a big, you know, come to the Lord moment. I'm like, uh, all right. And and then I told him, you know, uh and before before you had that sort of come to the Lord moment, um, mm-hmm. what is it that drove you to to swallow it like that? What is it that pushed you into a place where you're like, it, I, I can't. I can't show this. Is it, is it the, the machismo, the, 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 you know, ego? What, what, what do you think it was? 
for me, it's not, I'm not really an ego guy. I'm, a, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm, there's nothing cool about me or anything I've ever done. I'm just like, I'm just a guy, dude. Uh, for me, uh, I'm not saying those, those people don't exist. There are, right? I, a lot of them are my best friends. Um, but for me, it was just like, I had a tremendous responsibility at that point. You know, my job was to impart the skill to make these war fighters are getting ready to go back into the, you know, back, step back in the arena better. Right. That was my job. And I was pretty, I think I was pretty good at it. You know, um, heck, you, there's, you can ask any of my students, you know, I think I was pretty good, you know, um, some of them are kind of famous nowadays, but it, ask them what kind of instructor was Rod, you know, and I would they show up early, I would stay late. I wanted them to be better. That was it. But additionally, at that time, you know, I have, I have three sons, right? Um, I have a, I have to be ready for them. What If I'm not doing this and I lose my job, what can I do for them? How can I provide for them? I have a responsibility to them. Um, additionally, at that time, uh, I was married at the time. So my ex-wife, um, she was, we were doing military couple, you know, both her and I served for 21 years and we weren't officers. Uh, we were enlisted and dual military enlisted couples are far rarer than dual military officer couples because they take care of officers a little bit better. I'll say it. Uh, if it upsets you know, your officers, you're upset because you know, it's true. You said the uh, quiet part out loud. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. It needs to be said more, but it doesn't make us special. It was just our, it was, as a role we chose. I don't think we're special for it. It's just, so I had a lot, I, for me, I had a lot of responsibility. Um, and that's what drove it, drove me to do that, um, to just continue to provide because I come from where I come from, you know, again, like I mentioned, my father is a very stoic man. He provided, he worked seven days a week. He worked, he, he, you know, um, he worked a lot. He gave everything for us much like, you know, it's just who we are. That's what we do. You give everything. You don't need a lot. I don't need a lot. I live a very modest lifestyle, but I will give everything I possibly can to those that, you know, I my loved ones and my familia um, and those that I can help. An easy, an easy way to say it is it's, it's duty, right? You felt that sense of that sense of duty. Right. But it was more than a duty to country. It was more, it was a duty to, to, to my people as well. And that's why I reference when I say my people, I mean, those that I was teaching and, and, and my familia, yes, that's our country, a duty to country, but it's, it's more than that. Because if you ask guys that serve, if, hey, are you here because you're enforcing this national policy? No, I'm here because of who's standing next to me. That's why I'm here. So yeah. I think it's important to note that when you say duty, people are like, oh, well, you're supporting the country. Well, of course, I love this country. I'm going to give everything I can. I give my life. You know, I, 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 would, I would do anything for this country. Yeah, but, you know, I think there's a lot of people that don't really uh, hook on to the idea that duty extends beyond the seven army values. The definition of duty itself it, it it crosses borders. There's no there's no hard and fast hook that says it's duty to country. Mm -hmm. it, it's it it really spans it, it spans your entire life. I Absolutely. mean, you, you saw you saw a duty to make sure those those uh, your your fellow Green Berets were were trained uh, you know to the to the sharpest point uh, so they could go and do do the things that we needed them to do. You had a duty to provide for your family. There, there's just so many different facets to that. Yeah, absolutely. It was a duty to humanity really like and 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 our lifestyle and who we are and, and duty is who you are that's a i think duty is a, a defining characteristic of individuals and if you ask people what does duty mean they probably gonna give you a different definition you know some people are going to spot off the textbook answer or what you're going to find in marion Webster's, but if they really think about it like, well what does that mean and then you you will find based off how an individual answers that question you're going to find out who that individual is
Well, there are times where duty uh, hits up against the brick wall of reality. And oh. so I think, I think to uh, not to put too fine a point on it, oh, yeah. that may be where you found yourself at that point. So yeah. what, what was that, what was that significant emotional event like where you realized I'm, I'm at the end of the, I'm at the end of the road here. Yeah. So for me, I thought I was doing the right thing and it was a gentleman I was interviewing for a job at a, I was getting ready to go do something else. I don't want to get too specific about it. I got through, went through a selection. I was getting ready to go do something else. And, and that's where uh, my first witness seizure happened. I couldn't do anything. I was being interviewed at the time and I'm like, Oh shit. And they're like, what the hell's going on? Uh, so when I say my command, it was above my command. Um, and then I'm like, well, I'm not going to lie. I lied on everything to get here, but I'm not going to lie right now. Um, <laughs> Because of the unit commander. So I'm like, oh, shit. Okay, this is what's going on. This is what I'm dealing with. And they're like, and he was like, he was very, very blunt and honest, which is great. He's like, Rod, you know, we 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 were excited for you to come over. You were going to go to, and so they, they had a plan for me, right? Because I knew a lot of them and a lot of, they came to our course, right? And and they're like, then he, then he just said, why the F would we want you? Let me ask you a question, Rod. Let's say we send you on a mission, you're the cell leader, you're there. So do you want someone dealing with the stuff you deal with on your team? And you don't know about it? And I was like, I answered real quick, like, no. He goes, why the F would we want you? And I'm like, fair enough. He goes, you need to go back, get taken care of, and we'll continue the conversation. I'm like, okay. And that's what happened. So I come back and the command's like, whoa. And they didn't really know. And then I was finally honest with with the guys out at Range 37. And they're like, all right. and they sent me at that time, uh, the National Trepid Center of Excellence had just stood up. This is around two, 2011, 2010, 2011. Uh, NICO is professionally referred to as um, Walter Reed. And they specialize in traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic. They, they do full body workup, you know, from top of the head to, to tip of toes. And I went there and uh, it's a, a four-week program. They put you in a cohort, uh, a group of, there was like six of us. They run you. I mean, it's man. I wish everybody had the opportunity to do that because uh, you know, like, the best way to frame it is, or to explain it for people what that's like is, it's like, say you got a bum knee, right? Like, like athletes, like, just talk about professional athletes. So, like, their knee hurts. They keep taking Motrin or pain meds. Right. You know, they don't really get checked, and then they finally go get checked. The ortho's like, "Holy crap, dude! You don't have a knee at all. You're destroyed." Or anybody in the army, right? Like, ah, let me just keep. That's kind of what happened to me systemically, right? Uh, I let they when I was there, they started going down the laundry list. It was 18 different things, 18 different diagnoses that was wrong with me, or not wrong with me. Let me rephrase that. There was 18 diagnoses that I received. Nothing wrong. That's just what happens, right? You drive on a tire long enough, the treads get bald. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just wear and tear. Yep. So they, they when they you're there and there's a team of doctors and they they read me these things and they start with, hey, look, we really think you have something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. As an easy adult, I knew what that was. I'm like, all right. You know, then the prognosis for those things, it's pretty grim, I guess, you know? Um, but I'm like, okay, now you have a vestibular balance disorder. This is what's wrong with your eyes. They go through things. And any one of those things, I guess, would be, you know, kind of scary, I suppose, maybe. Um, but they're they're pretty significant. They go down, they go down, they go down, they go down. And then the last one they say to me, and they do it on purpose, and it's smart to do it this way. And you, you have severe post-traumatic stress disorder. And then I got pissed because, you know, I was like, what? I got mad. I got upset. And I said, F you. I don't have that. And I don't know why. Right? I mean, I, 
I was upset that all those other things I was cool with and I can face that. Right. But this, I just didn't want to believe. So they said, Rod, before we even address or start to treat any of these things, which we need to start, we have to get your alcoholism. Uh, Cause I was drinking a lot and uh, your post-traumatic stress under, you know, let's, let's just manage that. Cause we can't do anything else until we get that taken care of. Cause that they said that that'll kill you faster than anything else. And I was like, well, what does that mean? Um, thankfully, my SOCOM Care Coalition advocate was in the room with me because I was started getting hot. And and he was my, uh, he was actually my battalion sergeant major when I got wounded. He retired and he, the you know, guy named, uh, man, this guy's amazing. Um, so he was there and he kind of kept me cool. And they're like, well, we want to send you to an inpatient treatment facility. I'm like, another hospital? They're like, yes, but for special, it's a dual diagnosis, uh, chemical dependency and post-traumatic stress. I'm like, what does that mean? Wow. They're like, it's a inpatient uh hospital i mean and i go like a psych hospital they're like it's an inpatient i'm like so that's a yes and they're like it's a four-week program well we'd like to send you in two days and i'm like what you know i, I, had, I was about there for four weeks i was gonna go home pack and then they wanted me to go to this place and i was like i'm not and then pete grabbed me and he was like you need to go i'm like shit i respect i know this man so i'm like I was, okay i'll do it so i went down there uh my four weeks turned into eight weeks i guess i needed the extra training <laughs> um but phenomenal, phenomenal program. I'm glad I did it. Um, you know, I, I, for the first time, I missed uh, holidays. It was right before Thanksgiving. So I missed Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. Um, not because I was at war, but because I was I don't know, at war with myself. I don't know. Maybe I could say it that way. Um, for my family, because it was a lot. It was a facility. Uh, I didn't get any visitors, you know, um, and appropriately uh, staffed. and. Um, it was, that's what I needed, right? Uh, guards, all that stuff. Uh, so that's, that was began the, the journey for me. And that was, uh, it was in there when uh, my doctor was just kind of put me on, on the spot quite a few times. I love the guy to death. He's like a close friend of mine now. He's not my doctor anymore, but we stayed in touch, uh, Dr. Latif. And he's, uh, he's the one that told me kind of like the, probably one of the greatest advice checks I ever got was with doc. He was like, we were sitting down there and I was just miserable because right before the thing I left out was at, after they said all that. And then they said at NICO, they're like, um, every single one of these things are, uh, um, God, what's the word? Uh, duty limitation. I can't remember what this thing is, but this is what I remember most. He goes, they were like, we are initiating military or, um, we're initiating uh, medical retirement procedures for you. You can no longer perform your duties as a special forces Green Beret. And that's word for word what they told me. So I was like, holy crap. Not only do I have to go to this place, I'm getting kicked. I, I'm getting kicked out, right? That's what I'm thinking. I was at like 20 years anyway, like almost 20 years in the Army, but I didn't want to go. So I'm losing my identity. I'm like, that's what I thought. And I'm going to this thing. So I was not in a good place. Uh, and I got to stop drinking, right? Because I'm not going to be able to drink while I'm there. So, um, yeah, I was pretty miserable, um, but self-inflicted and I'll describe what that means by self-inflicted. So it was Dr. Latif. I remember, you know, you go through the program and everything and you meet your psych every day and, and talk and, you know, go through the program. And Dr. Latif told me, he goes, Rod, are you suffering? And I was like, F yeah, I'm suffering. What do you mean am I suffering? And he said something. And, and I was like, uh, he goes, you're, you're suffering because you're choosing to suffer. I'm like, what? What do you mean I'm choosing? And he's like, Rod, you're in pain, right? I go, yeah, of course. He goes, I'm in pain. Do you know that? I go, uh, everybody in here is in pain. 
Everybody on the planet is in some type of physical or emotional or spiritual pain. If they are suffering, it's because the pain is controlling them. They are not properly addressing it. They, they have allowed the pain in their life, wherever it is, whatever bucket, you know, physical, emotional, or spiritual, to take control and guide them and pull them towards suffering. Suffering is a choice. It's your choice if you choose to. And so he said, you're going to be in pain. You think pain, you think pain's ever going to leave you? No, you've been in pain since you, you know, came into this planet, you know, were born into this world. Pain will always be with you. Pain's a constant. Pain's life. Pain's not a bad thing. Don't let the pain control you. The pain's controlling you, then you're suffering. And then I was just sat there and I was just like, holy shit, he's right. Right. At that point. It's kind of an epiphany, right? To, right to... Uh, absolutely. And, and at that point, that's when I realized why I got so pissed off that they told me I had severe post-traumatic stress. I didn't want to accept it. So it was, it was not like it wasn't there. I could, I, I was trying to ignore it, but it was there. You know, this, this PTS started, you know, my, when I was a kid. So why would I not admit it's there? Right. I've never stepped into a ring or a cage or gone outside the wire on a, on a, on a mission with a blindfold on. I've always sought out the enemy, identified the enemy, known everything about the enemy I possibly can so I can properly aggress it. Why would I do that for myself? So when he why told, would you why would you not do it for yourself? Right, is right. the real <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Why would I that's what I meant? Why would I not do that for myself? Right. So that's when I was like, okay, I was at that moment, I was able to properly identify uh, what was holding or what was the pain that was making me suffer. Right. And then I took control back and I was like, okay, that's what I have to aggress. That's what I have to fight. But it's my fight. It's no one else's fight. I can't throw it at anybody else. I can't make those around me feel bad. I can't. I'm the only one that can fight that war. I would love to fight anybody else's war that's suffering, but I can't. I just can't do it. I can fight mine. You can fight yours. And that's your responsibility. And that's my responsibility. A, a bigger part of my responsibility of fighting my war is ensuring that my war doesn't turn on to you, right? It doesn't affect my loved ones or my surroundings or my performance. Um, but that didn't, that didn't always happen for you no absolutely not but that's 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 what it was and that's when like everything that was said to me that i didn't agree with or i didn't like made sense you know everything from what you know um me not agreeing or liking the fact i had severe post my stress or you know when i was told by the by the, by the the guys up there they're like hey why would we want you um in our unit um all that stuff made sense to me at that point i'm like damn all right it's I, you know, up until that point, I thought I was doing the right thing, but I had become a liability. And that's not what I ever want to be. I don't really want to be a burden or liability to anybody. So if I'm not good to myself, I can't be good to anybody else. So that's when I'm like, all right, I got to build myself back up, take care of myself so I can continue to provide and, and build on the existing responsibilities I have and seek out new responsibilities. My responsibility isn't to wage war or provide hope and freedom and safety to those outside the United States anymore. My job is not really to free the oppressed anymore, but I can have additional responsibilities to serve this nation and humanity. And that's, and that's, that was right there. That was just the moment that I was like, all right, cool. That's, that's what I'll do. So I don't want to skip over your timeline at all, because there, there's so much important um, growth that happened for you in, in, in the, in the uh, aftermath of your your military career, but I, I want to connect two parts, and that is the the purpose driven um, lifestyle, the purpose driven mission focused lifestyle that you lived as a Green Beret, 
And then that same purpose-driven work that brought you to the foundation. So what, what, again, it's been a twisty path, right? right. What, what is it that landed you in this organization that is, is focused and driven to, to build a monument to a war that some say is still going on? Right. So I got out in 2013. That's when um, the uh, medical retirement proceedings were finally done. It was uh, August uh, 1st was my last day, uh, 2013. Um, and that's when I was like, I'm, I'm still doing, all right, I'm, I got to take care of me. I just, my world had to get small so I could take care of me and my loved ones before I could really. And then I finally got to a point where like, well, I have a little bit of time. That's my greatest asset. I'm not a matter of resource at all. So I'm like, my greatest asset is time. Maybe I can give some time, an hour a week, a few hours a week, maybe maybe a few a month in support to give back to somebody else. Because if someone gives me something, I don't really feel like indebted, but I want to pass it on, right? So any anything I receive or any relationship I have, there's no perceived ROI, right? It's not a return of investment. It's like, do good. I want to treat others as I would love to be treated. So if someone does something good to me, I'm either going to treat them or someone, you know what I mean? So it's not like, right, right. Yeah. Hey, so that's what I started doing, reaching out and, um, to, to uh, cause several different uh, VSOs stepped up to help me, um, you know, take care of certain things and receive certain treatments uh, and certain things uh, that I couldn't afford or that weren't um, part of the normal care. Right. So like, uh, I'll talk about like my prosthetic. Right. Um, so with my eyes, I said, I have them. I didn't lose it. Um, the, the, the fix for the military or the VA, cause then I transitioned to the VA system was like, well, we can do surgery and try and adjust your eyes to the lineup, but we're not sure we're going to guess. There's very small muscles that coordinate your eyes, control your eyes. Cause my eyes at the time, cause they weren't communicating. I was going cross-eyed, right? That's the best way to describe it. They were trying to marry up images that were never going to marry up headaches. And it didn't help with my balance disorder. Um, so they're like, well, we can just wear an eye patch, just use one eye at a time. And I was like, okay, that that'll work. Um, I hate wearing eye patches. I'll be honest with you. I don't, the, the 10,000 pirate jokes are fine. It didn't bother me at all, but I'm an active guy. I, eye patches are uncomfortable. I sweat. I, I don't like working out with them. I'm like, this has got to be a better way. Um, so then there was a, uh, a neural ophthalmologist that I, I had sought out. There's not many of them people. And uh, they were like, hey, look, we, there's these prosthetics we can make. Uh, it's, it, they work, they function somewhat, they go in somewhat like a contact, but it's an entire lens that covers your eye. And what it'll do is it will uh, block out enough of the visual stimuli from your non-dominant eye to where your brain is only processing processing images from the dominant eye, but it doesn't get rid of your peripheral vision. So like if I put my off to my left side, because I wear one of my, my prosthetic covers the my left eye, um, if I look out, I can see stuff off to my left, whereas an eye patch and I can't see anything. So then right. that that helped remember I said a, a balance problem that helped maintain my death perception. I mean, it was just game changing for me. So the doctors say, Hey, we have one, but it doesn't match. And I'm like, I don't care, man, just whatever. So they have one, they gave it to me and it's, it was a blue, bluish green. Um, and that's what I wear. That's why they don't match. Um, and then I'll, I'll actually, I don't think I've ever showed this publicly. Um, the reason they'll never match is I remember I was going through TSA one time. And so some people are born like this, it's called heterochromia. And there was a little girl behind me and her eyes were identical to mine. And I turned around, but she was had heterochromia. She was like seven or eight years old. And she said, mommy, that man has eyes like I do. And I was like, oh, I go, no, sweetie, yours are far more beautiful than mine. The Lord blessed you like that. You were made that way. I have to try to, I have to wear a special prosthetic lens to make me as pretty as you. As you you're beautiful the way you are. 
And she got all shy and got behind her. <laughs> so we go through security and then, you know, the part where you put your shoes on and belt and all that stuff, put your bag back together. The mom came over to me and she goes, um, um, and she goes, thank you for that. I go, well, well, for what? Um, and she goes, my daughter is so proud. Oh, I, I think I left out because she asked me, why do I have to do that? I said, well, I was a soldier. I, um, I got hurt, uh, on a deployment and that's why I do this. Right. And so, so that was in the line. So then we're out there. The mother comes over to me and she goes, thank you for doing that. I go, uh, for what, ma'am? You know, she will tell me that she was, my daughter gets bullied relentlessly because of that. People make fun of her. Her kids make fun of her. I mean, her classmates do. So she's proud as hell that she has eyes like a soldier. So Man. I, I was like, all right, cool. Enough for me. Uh, like I said, this, this, this is probably the first time I think I've ever, this first time I've ever told it publicly. I mean, a few people have heard this story, but that's why my eyes will never match. Wow. That, that's a, that, that's a, that's a shot to the breadbasket right there. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, you know, there's also the added benefit that you, you could be the next Bond villain too. I mean, you've got, <laughs> You've got the perfectly placed scar. You've got the the, the off color eye. I mean, you're you're you are perfectly typecast for that. A uh, little different, I guess. Like a Siberian husky with a with a scratch on his face. That's, <laughs> That's awesome, Rod. We're, we we uh, we we are not necessarily running out of time, but I do want to talk about uh, the foundation. I want to talk about the memorial, and I want to talk about the good work that you're doing to make sure that everyone who has served. Uh, in the in the in the bookends that are the global war on terror, um, making sure that all of us have a place that we can go to remember our brothers and sisters. H- how did how did this opportunity land in front of you, and 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 where where is it where is it going from here? Sure. So uh, the, I'm not one of the founders. I have to tell people that because people assume I am. I'm not. So in 2015, a group of veterans and, and family members came together, recognizing the need to do this to build a national war memorial. And they were people like, my God, it, probably, it takes forever to do it. We need to start now. If we don't, when will it get done? We didn't. They didn't want what happened to the World War One generation or the, like the majority of the World War Two generation, unable to travel to the, to see the World War Two. Like my grandfather's and and great uncle. None of, none of my family that served in World War Two has ever seen that. They've, they're all passed. Uh, the last World War One survivor, Mister Buckles, passed away. I believe 2011, 2012. The World War One memorial was just dedicated like a year and a half ago. So wow, that's that's weird to think. This about. visionary group came together to do that. I was speaking at an event in 2016, and uh, at this time, I was, you know, I was, like I said, I was volunteering time um, where I could, and by some happenstance, I think I'm like a roach. I end up places that I shouldn't be. I'm like, I said the other day, I'm like a roach that you see in a fancy French restaurant. Like, what the hell is that guy doing in here? So <laughs> I say that because at this point, I was serving as a as a personal advisor to President George W. Bush. Um, guiding the strategic vision on how to better serve post 9-11 veterans and the families through the Bush Center's uh, military service initiative. That's what I was doing. Um, and they knew that. And they're like, Rod, we need help. I go, what are you guys doing? And they told me, and this is 2016. I'm like, what? you do? I'm like, oh my God, that's absolutely. What can I do? Join the board in 2016. 2017, we introduced a bill to get authorization because there's a law that says a war has to be over 10 years. In order for a national war memorial to be built, uh, that doesn't apply. We were, and we're in a multi-generation, 21-plus-year war. We would never get the opportunity. That swept through the House of 2017, uh, House and Senate. Uh, President Trump signed in August 2017. 2018, I stepped in the leadership role and started to build the uh, – because there's this beautiful, great idea. All right, now we got to do it. Uh, 
There's a there's yeah. a there's a big gap between the right. good idea and the execution. So then um was fortunate to to have the network I have and all the people that I do. Uh, I was like, all right. Um the board was like, hey Rod, think you can do it? I'm like, oh, I'll try. So I built the team you see today um within the foundation. And then uh in 20 uh then we went to pass another piece of legislation to get it built in an area called the reserves, which most people call the National Mall, which is where all the memorials will be built. Nothing new has been authorized since 2003. Everybody's tried, everybody's failed. Uh, this memorial belongs on our nation's front lawn. We have to, we we all have a duty to honor the brave men and women that served and fought and died in our nation's longest war. So we fought hard. I was told, everyone told me, the people that control the space, like, Rod, you can't do it. It's going to be impossible. Millions of dollars, 10, 10, 15 years. I'm like, all right, well, we'll see it. And uh, three and a half years later, President Biden signed our bill into law, putting us back on the 24-step process to build a national war memorial. Uh, where we're at right now, um, hoping by the first quarter of 2023, we can finally point to a spot on the ground. We've been working very hard. I'm talking about thousands and thousands of hours developing a multitude of sites to find the right site for this. By quarter one, 2023, hope to be able to point to a spot on the ground saying it's going to be built here. Then we're going to move into the design process. That's about a two-year process. So by the end of 2025, we'll have a design approved. Uh, hopefully, we'll have raised, I'm pretty confident, we'll have raised the hundred, the projected $100 million we need to build this thing right now. Um, then we can start digging, and it's about a two-year building project, and we hope to be completed by the end of 2027. Um, we're doing something that's never been done before. We're building a war memorial to an active war. Now, yes, we're not in Afghanistan anymore, but people need to understand, especially the veteran community, that the global war on terrorism is a war, right? Um, in September 18th, 2001, the use of military force agreement was uh, signed. And every administration since then has used this to wage war against terrorism. It's stated, look it up. You guys can get educated on it. The various theaters we've been in have all been operations. Now, if you think about World War II, Operation Overlord was D-Day. Was D-Day a war? No, Right. There are any number of named operations that exist in World War II, but it was World War II. And I think most people have the, uh, the misunderstanding that the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, the war in Syria, the war in Somalia, um, the war in or what occurred in Niger. You know, one, one of my friends, uh, I know one of the gentlemen in third group that was ambushed and they were killed. They're all fighting terrorism in a multitude of different capacities. At any given time, men and women are across the globe right now placing themselves in harm's way, fighting terrorism as defined by and by our national policy. That's the global war on terrorism. That's what we're doing and that's what we're going to honor. So all the brave men and the war is still going on. You know, the second they say it's over or they stop using that, then okay. You know, and I'm not making this up. Do your own research. You know, I never thought I would know everything I know right now. And I never did. I think I'd be building a national war memorial, but here I am. Um, but I'm going to do the best I can with the greatest, with, with as much resources and as educated as we possibly can be. So that's well, I'll tell you we're we're we are going to keep a, an eye on you. We're going to keep an eye on this project because it is our memorial. Michael Rodriguez, Rod, really appreciate you coming by. Always in pursuit. Rod is the president and CEO of the Global War on Terrorism Memorial Foundation. Again, thanks so much for your time today. No, I really appreciate the opportunity to to chat with you, Armando. Look look forward to continuing the conversation. Hey, before we go, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app of choice so you can get our new episodes the minute they drop. And if you're so inclined, leave us a five-star review because it helps us spread the word to a larger and more diverse audience. You can also head over to alwaysinpursuit.org for our blog content, newsletters, and AIP swag. 
Thanks to our sponsor, Adaton. Check out muster at adaton.io slash product. And we're very grateful to have had Michael Rod Rodriguez, the president and CEO of the Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Always in Pursuit. I'm Mike Levine, reminding you to live life on the offense.